Well, good morning, and thank you for choosing to worship here with us at Harvest Baptist Church. I want to start first by saying thank you for all the support that you all have shown us as our lead pastor, Alan Shelby, and his wife, Delana, are out on sabbatical, uh, enjoying some well-deserved rest for over 40 years of faithful ministry and service. Yes, please clap. I, that's a long time. So two weeks ago, uh, we had the honor of Pastor Ron Griffin, who kickstarted our sabbatical series titled Stronger Together, uh, with a message that emphasized the importance of unity. He challenged us to center our lives on Christ, to walk worthy of our calling, and to take personal responsibility for maintaining our unity with others in, uh, in our lives. And then last week, Pastor Dave Hill did a phenomenal job of honoring our mothers and reminding us that bitterness has no place in the life of a Christian and that when we need him, Christ is there, the Lord is there for comfort and direction. So if you don't know by now, my name is Josh Keats and I have the honor and privilege of serving here at Harvest as your associate pastor. Additionally, I'm involved with men's ministry, with discipleship, I help with LFBI from time to time. And I teach the Firm Foundations class, and this will be a shameless plug. Please join us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. in Room 5, where you can hear more from what I've prepared from the Bible, if you should choose. But uh, that's my shameless plug for my class. Um, there are many other great adult Sunday school classes, but mine's the best. That aside, I'm here all Sunday but one. You might notice that I'm gone from time to time because I still serve in the Missouri Army National Guard. Um, and you will see that that influences my perspective and the way that I preach. So, but I promise you, my demeanor as a soldier, it translates to my face. I have resting soldier face. And I will try to smile more than just on the inside. I'll try to extend that to the outside. <laughs> But if you've met my father, you know that I come by it honestly. So today I begin with the following charge, to become stronger together by uprooting bitterness from our lives. Have you guys noticed, and this is one of the coolest things about our church, is that it does not look like the average church in America today. We are unique because that we're not only culturally diverse, but we're also generationally diverse. We have young, old, black, white, pink, purple. I mean, we got it all. And we love it. So go ahead, look to your left and look to your right. See what I'm talking about. You see it, right? This is a glimpse of what heaven will look like. Our diversity is one of our church's great strengths because it allows us to reach more people with the gospel through more ways because of the different levels and many circles of influence that we have available to us. It's not just a cookie-cutter church. We're not all white, we're not all black, we're not all old, we're not all young. We're mixed up, and it's awesome. Thank you. Um, how many of you all ever received unwanted advice from parental units when you were growing up? Anybody? Or am I the only one? Yeah. So I love my dad, but he has a gift for the three- to five-hour lecture. And if I'm honest, I have to admit that... Uh, I didn't catch very much over five hours. I caught a snippet here and there because I had the deer in the headlight, and I was like, when is this going to end? <laughs> but that, that's just true, right? You, you can only take so much, so much input. 
One piece of advice that always stuck with me is this, and this isn't the only great piece of advice my dad gave me because he gave me crap about this already, uh, but son, be careful of your strengths because your greatest strengths can also become your greatest weaknesses. Now, what do I mean by that? It's precisely because of our diversity as a church that we can become vulnerable to perceive differences, which... If we are not careful, we could allow to divide us against one another, and sometimes it does. Bitterness is one of Satan's most effective weapons in spiritual warfare, which he uses in distracting, dividing, and conquering us. So I'm a soldier, and if I want to be effective in fighting the enemy, I want the enemy to fight itself, not me. I mean, what greater thing can you do than to set your own forces against itself? After our time together, we should all leave today with a clear understanding of what bitterness is, how to identify bitterness in my life, how to overcome bitterness, how to transform your feelings of bitterness into something else, and then finally to learn to adopt a strategy to win God's way, because let's be honest, many of us have been fighting the world's way. I pray that you will understand what bitterness is, how it functions, and how to deal with bitterness while preserving unity within your relationships. So let's begin by defining what bitterness is. If you will, turn to Hebrews 12, 14 through 15, or look at the slide above. It says this, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank you for this time and this opportunity to stand in Alan's pulpit. Lord, I pray that you are glorified through the words that are spoken here. Lord, I pray that hearts and minds would be willing and able to receive the word that is given. Lord, I pray that we walk away not just hearers of the word, but doers also, that we may apply your word, that you may be glorified. These things we pray in your son's name. Amen. So what is bitterness? Let's start by examining the phrase, root of bitterness. A literal definition of this word reveals in its context that it, it's describing something that's a bitter taste or bitter drink. But that's not fully what it means. The bitterness that is being described here is not just a resulting outcome like a taste. The verb, to be bitter, describes the activity of bitterness. It says this, that it cuts or it pricks. This cutting or pricking harms the embittered person, the person who has bitterness. So our working definition of bitterness then is that it is a self-inflicting wound with roots that cut or prick the embittered person. All right, It doesn't just stop there either because if it has roots, it has fruits. And if you remember the verse in uh, Hebrews chapter um, 12 verse 15, it emphasizes that the roots of bitterness are not only harm you individually, but that the fruits of one's bitterness by those fruits, many are defiled. So it has an inward effect and an outward effect. The roots harm you while the fruits harm others. And I'm saying fruits plural, not like fruit as in the fruit of the spirit, right? Because here's the thing about Bitterness. Bitterness starts with a single seed of offense. 
But we, what we would like to do is we like to plant a garden of offenses, plural. So we take many offenses, we plant a garden in our hearts, and we grow many fruits rather than a single fruit. Are you with me? All right. So what causes bitterness? Bitterness is the direct result of one's refusal, refusal, I say again, refusal to forgive others. Bitterness as a feeling has a specific function. Don't get me wrong. Like it does something, right? But it should help you identify when you have not forgiven somebody, not go to war with them. Bitterness always starts with a single seed of offense, which is dropped onto the soil of your heart, my heart, anyone's heart. And to be clear, a seed of offense can be this. It can be to the offended person, either a real offense or something that is simply imagined. And we have a choice to respond to such offenses in one of two ways. The first way is simple, forgive. Or, the more common approach, by cultivating that seed. And this is done, the cultivation process is through dwelling, thinking, reliving on that offense. You do it over and over and over and over again in your mind. You just... It occupies your headspace. Instead of you owning it, it owns you. So Jesus reminds us in Matthew 18, verses 34 through 35, why forgiving is so important, saying, And his Lord was wroth and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due unto him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if ye from your hearts, not just from your mouth, but from your hearts, Forgive not everyone his brother their trespass or sin. So let me ask you another question. What does it look like when we cultivate bitterness? I'll give you a real life example. And my wife maybe have been a little embittered through the process of me using this illustration, but she has since forgiven me. <laughs> no, so early in our marriage, I made some epic mistakes. I know none of you know what that's like, right? Uh, one instance I can recall vividly, I just come home from a field exercise, you know, two or three weeks out the field, so I smelled amazing. I had very little laundry. Um, but my wife, we were still in that honeymooning phase, she greeted me at the door, overlooked the smelliness, gave me a, a kiss and said, honey, will you please take your laundry downstairs to the basement so that I can wash it? And I said, okay, babe. And right there in the kitchen, I dumped out my duffel bags, I stripped off my clothes, and I marched into the, the bathroom to take a shower. Well, I foolishly left it there over time. My wife didn't say anything. And over time, you can imagine that she's observing this laundry pile as a daily reminder of my lack of follow-through, my offense, because, let's be honest, I offended her. Um, but Eventually, as she began to stew on this, she exploded. I mean, it was nuclear, and I deserved it. But here's a, maybe a, a, this isn't exactly what she thought, I don't know, but this is, you know, the process that we go through, right? I dump the pile. Well, he just doesn't respect the work that I do in terms of laundry. So she's planting the seed, and then the next thought comes up. How can he not see this pile continuing to be in our laundry room i mean or i mean in the kitchen you got to eat here you got to go buy it to get to the basement you got to so she's covering it with soil and day two so now it's been more than one day i'm really in trouble now 
why has he not yet noticed this? Like, is he blind? So she's aerating and fertilizing this seed, now starting to sprout and get roots. Um, and then it finally gets to the explosion point. That's it. He's going to die. <laughs> you see that the bitterness is firmly rooted. Well, to her credit, she did confront me in a non-biblical way, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> but really what this does is illustrate how quickly we can allow a seed of offense to to implant itself, grow bitter, grow roots, and start having some fruit. So that explosion was the fruit of the bitterness that had already started to grow. Now imagine that over time, had I not come to my senses, realized what a jack wagon I was, and sought her forgiveness. I had to grovel for that one, and rightfully so. But can you see why bitterness is such an effective tool for Satan to use? I mean, through bitterness, he effectively entices a believer to sabotage themselves while hurting others as the root of their, de- their bitterness begin to deepen and the plant begins to flourish and the fruit starts to ripen. This has second and third order effects. So what does bitterness look like in my life? What are the fruits of bitterness? Again, I'm, I'm distinguishing fruits, not fruit. How many of these things can you identify with? And we'll hit Proverbs 14.10, which tells us, The heart knoweth his own bitterness. So you already know in your heart when you have bitterness. Can you identify any of these in your lives? Uh, Difficulty in resolving conflict, acts of vengeance, outbursts of anger, criticism, suspicion and distrust, impatience, disrespect, rebellion against authority, doubts regarding your own salvation, this is probably my favorite. Remembering in great detail the specifics of an offense. Like, you deconstruct this thing. You've got an entire construction model on one single offense where there are blueprints for it. It's crazy. But how do I overcome bitterness in my life? If you can identify fruits of bitterness, then you are also able to put bitterness off by replacing it biblically. We're going to look at the basic principles of forgiveness, and this comes from Luke chapter 17, verses 3 through about four and a half-ish, maybe five. It says, Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespasses against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, and seven times in a day turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. You see, forgiveness is granted on a a conditional basis in this verse. If we look at verse 3, it says this, If thy brother trespasses or sins against thee. Here's why I'm bringing this up. We often find ourselves demanding forgiveness for things which don't even qualify for forgiveness. You know what I'm talking about. Some things where they didn't give me what I wanted. I'm offended. They let me down. I'm offended. They hurt my feelings. I'm offended. They disappointed me. Now I'm offended. Well, someone might have done some or all of these things in the process of sinning. But here's the thing. If they are not in need of your forgiveness, they are not in need of your forgiveness unless the sin that they committed is against you. How many times are we offended for the sake of others instead of us being sinned against personally? 
If someone has done something to upset you, it is not a sin. Consider talking to them about the matter before taking the offense and allowing it to change you. Do what Matthew 18.15 says. Go one-to-one and talk to that person. It is not the offender who must repent in this case, but you who must repent. I who must repent. We who must repent because we have allowed for our unbiblical thinking to offend us over an issue that God was never offended by. It's quiet in here. Did I strike a chord? Often it is the offended party who must initiate forgiveness. And I know that's uncomfortable. But here's the thing. If you cannot overlook a transgression, and Proverbs 19.11 gives us some criteria for that, the discretion of a man deferreth his anger, and it is his glory to pass over a transgression. So if it's so serious that you can't pass it over, okay, you met one criteria, right? Or cover it in love. And how often it's simply just because we don't want to love another person that we won't pass over a sin. Because 1 Peter 4.8 says this, And above all things, have fervent charity. That's not a little bit of love. Fervent charity. That is a heavy love. It's an active love. Among yourselves, for charity or love shall cover the multitude of sins. Not one sin, but a multitude of sins. So are we being offended simply because we have been sinned against or because it's convenient? If these two criteria are met, then you now have an obligation, you, to go to your brother who has sinned, not them to come to you. And you rebuke them. Again, another uncomfortable thing, because the Bible doesn't say and gently coddle them or to, you know, hopefully resolve this conflict without being confrontational. It says rebuke rebuke Matthew 5:23 tells us this Therefore if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest thou that thy brother hast ought against thee leave thy gift before the altar and go thy way first be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift because here's the thing relationships are more important to God than any petty gift he's got everything on this planet he owns it all. He doesn't care for that. That's a, it's, it's, it's symbolic, that, that gift. But the real thing is relationships, because we carry relationships into eternity with us. So let's talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness comes at a great personal cost. For most of us, it's just pride. Let's be honest. And our pride costs us something. But let's put it in a perspective of what it costs Jesus. Because, because of how much you have been forgiven by God, for you to withhold forgiveness from another person is simply wickedness. As a Christian, we have firsthand knowledge and experience of God's love as it was spread across the cross. So we can never forget the debt that we owe to God for our sin. See, God sent His Son to die in your place, in my place, in our place, where He declared, Son, daughter, your debts and any penalties you owe have been paid in full. 
Do you understand the ramifications of that? So how can any one of us be so prideful, so bold, as to refuse the forgiveness to others for the petty little offenses in light of what he bore on the cross of others? I mean, consider all that Christ has done for you. And with that forgiveness comes a promise. Mark eleven twenty five says this, and when you stand praying, forgive if ye have odds against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. Here's what we are promising when we forgive. We are taking and functioning just like God functioned. Right? This is the implication. Do you realize that? You're functioning the way that God designed for all of us to function. We're emulating Him. He, we are promising that when we forgive others, that we no longer hold their, the offender's trespasses or sins against them. This means that we will not allow ourselves to any longer dwell on those offenses. You throw them away. This means we relinquish all of our personal rights to get even. In fact, getting even isn't even a right. And we'll talk about that later. This means that instead we think well of that person, that we pray for that person. It gets better, though, when a person actually acknowledges their part of the conflict. When they ask for your forgiveness, you're making two additional promises. You're making these two promises when you grant them forgiveness verbally. That you will not remember their sins the same way that God will not remember your sins. Which means you will never, ever, ever, ever bring that offense up again. Okay, now this is different than if somebody comes back with a new offense, right? There is no need to discuss it again. Again, But a new sin does require a new confrontation because you're dealing with a new sin. hope that makes it clear because I struggled with this one for so many years of my life, right? Do I go back to the sin? What do I do? They're sinning again. Well, you deal with it as it comes up. Let's be clear, though. Forgiveness is not, is not the same as trust. Yeah, they violated your trust. That's going to take some time and effort. Forgiveness should be immediate, though. And trust may take time. But here's a friendly warning. Don't use trust as a weapon. To withhold trust after it has been earned is simply unloving. 1 Corinthians 13.7 says this about love or charity. It believeth all things. So no matter how long it takes for you to trust your offender... You must remember to trust God to work in and through that person and to protect you at the same time from any dangers related to it. You get what I'm saying? God's got this. So forgiveness does not focus on secondary causes, but on the sovereignty of God. Now, when I say secondary causes, I'm going to use Joseph as an illustration to demonstrate what I mean. Everybody knows who Joseph is in the Bible, right? His brothers sold him into slavery. So if there's any person who might have a leg to stand on to claim I'm a victim, it's Joseph. His life, I mean, it's one disaster after another, but he had to learn to trust in God's sovereignty. He had to understand that his response was driven by God, not by his agenda, right? So... We see his response is not one of bitterness, even when his 
brothers come back claiming that he's going to use his power and authority against them. He did not become the victim. He allowed the circumstances to draw him closer to God as he realized that God had a greater plan for him, his family, for the future of the nation of Israel. You know, he's got the same thing for you in mind. Will you let him? Romans 8.28 tells us this, and we know all things work together for good. And all things includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. To them that love God. To them who are called according to his purpose. Not your purpose. Not the government's purpose. Not my purpose, but God's purpose. You know, God could prevent offenses that tempt us to bitterness, but he doesn't. Kind of sucks, doesn't it? I want him to prevent that stuff from me. But forgiveness doesn't focus on the offender's sin, but rather on how God might be using the offense to his glory. You ever turn the, the tables on your thinking sometimes to sit, try to think of it from God's perspective, what he's trying to accomplish, rather than what your own personal agenda is? See, God is more concerned about our response to the offense than the offense itself. Yeah, the offense sucks. But he's trying to do something in each one of you. Forgiveness involves an act of one's will. And this is not going to be popular. And, well, the Bible's not often popular. It's not one's emotions that drives it. So when we look at Luke chapter 17, verse 14, it says this, And if he trespass against thee seven times, because you know about the fourth time you're going, Really? You're coming back asking for forgiveness. I was done at number three. Seven times in a day and seven times in a day turn to thee saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. Are there any exceptions there? There are none. Thou shalt forgive him is the command. Jesus' directive in this point, commanding at the end of the statement, thou shalt forgive. Y'all with me so far? You get the importance of forgiveness right now? Maybe you're thinking, though, what if I don't feel like forgiving? I mean, I feel like that all the time. We're going to talk about how to transform your feelings. This is the keys to success right here. So part of our struggle, I believe, is formed out of our current cultural context, which is built for us this behavioral construct. Says this, the thought comes first, the feeling follows, and then we behave. That is absolutely a load of crap. The major flaw in this thinking is that we often don't follow through with our feelings because they don't produce the desired behavior because we simply don't feel like it. The logical conclusion then is that the behavior does not follow feelings, but rather feelings must follow behavioral action. I'm going to illustrate this with Corey Tenboom who recounts in her book titled The Hiding Place, The Following Encounter. She says, It was in a church in Munich where I was speaking in 1947 that I saw him, a balding, heavy-set man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw an overcoat that, that, and the brown hat, and the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. Now, He's standing in front of me, his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein. How good it is to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. And 
For me, this is the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there, but since that time he went on, I've become a Christian. And I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things that I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fraulein, again, the hand came out. Will you forgive me? Still, I stood there with coldness, clutching my heart. But forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me. I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You must supply the feeling. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my hand, sprang into our joined hands, and this feeling of warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands. The former guard and the former prisoner, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. You want to talk about an act of forgiveness? I don't know that I could do that. And yet she did. Here's the key, right? Understanding and applying Romans 12, 17 through 21. This gives us our keys for transforming from the act of forgiving to the feeling of forgiveness. So Romans 17, 21, 12, 17 through 21 says, Recompense to no man, evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, eat him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in doing so, thou shalt keep coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but... Overcome evil with good. Now I want to illustrate one thing real quick. So when he's talking about heaping coals upon the head, that's, a, that's from combat. Imagine a, a fortified wall and a group of soldiers on top of that wall. They've got buckets of coals. They're defending the gates. When you do good, you're guarding the gates. You're dumping those coals of fire out of the, the tower onto the heads of your enemies and this is unconventional warfare in today because we would rather do evil with evil, but that's not God's command. So we will learn to... Uh, see where am I at? Okay. So verse 21 we'll see is the summary statement for this paragraph. It's the first command that we are given to be not overcome of evil. We are commanded not to lose this battle. And if you lose this battle... Then you have sinned. And I know no one likes being told when they have been sinned, but sometimes we just need to know. Paul defines our enemy here as evil. It's the evil that people do and the evil people that do it. Your mission is to overcome that evil, and you are not to allow the evil of others to provoke you to do evil in return. This means that you may not retreat, you may not surrender, you may not give up, you may not throw up your hands. You may not throw in the towel. You can't wimp out. 
You may not allow evil to prevail against you, and you may not allow sin to provoke you to sin against others. Because that's the easy way. By now, we've defined bitterness, what it causes, or what causes it, how to identify it, how to deal with it, but now I'm going to challenge you to step back into the fight. See, as Christians, we're not supposed to give up ground. We're supposed to keep taking ground. I'm an infantryman, so I don't give up ground lightly. And I expect that you shouldn't give up ground lightly either. So let's learn to adopt a strategy to win God's way. This is how we fight to win. Here's the second part of that summary statement, which is more important, in Romans 12, 21, which says, But overcome evil with good. This reveals our secret weapon to overcoming evil. We have been commanded to win this war, to stand fast, then advance, and to overcome evil with good. This is not passive at all. We are to pursue the enemy until the enemy gives in. And as General George S. Patton Jr. says, it is not your, die to, your job to die for your country, but rather it's the enemy's job to die for theirs. You get what I'm aiming at with that statement? There is no place for compromise in an all-out war. We cannot settle for stalemates, standoffs, impasses, mutual bilateral disarmaments, deadlocks, or ceasefire agreements before the victory has been won. And can I tell you all, God won this victory already. And sometimes we're just giving it away. This is not a question of, well, how long can I hold the line, General? But rather... How can I use the vast resources that God has given me to overcome and defeat the enemy? God is not only interested in simply winning the war that you are engaged in, but also how you are winning that war. The weapons you employ must meet God's criteria, and it's simply this, by doing good. There's no other way. From Romans 12 verse 17, we realize that we cannot recompense to any man evil for evil. Therefore, we may not use any form of re retaliation because it's simply evil. That's not how God works. We see in 1 Peter 3 9, rendering, not rendering evil for evil. In 1 Thessalonians 5 15, see that none render evil for evil. You may retaliate with good, and you will note that our approach is not passive. The implementation of a good weapon, uh, the, imp the implementation of good as a weapon of war to overcome evil is active. Romans 12, 14 says, bless, that's active, them which persecute you. Bless and curse not. You may wonder about the idea of turning the cheek, right? Isn't that a passive response? Don't I become a doormat? Dr. J. Adams in his work titled Overcoming Evil explains this. The false interpretation of turning the other cheek equates the, that action to defeatism, doormatism. It intimates this idea, all I can do is lie here and invite you to wipe your muddy boots on me. Passivism or non-aggression must be exposed for what it is, a non-Christian misrepresentation of truth. Everywhere we read in the Bible, it teaches that the Christian must aggressively fight against evil to overcome it. There was nothing passive about the cross, by the way. The cross was active. He was sacrificing himself for the sins of his people, for the sins of you, for the sins of me, to free them from the chains of that sin and of the devil. 
here's the thing. We all must have a plan to respond to evil with good. Otherwise, we're just going to be doomed to do what we've always done. Remember who your enemy is. It's evil that your offender perpetrates on you. And when we look at Romans 12, 17, we observe that our response to evil is to provide or to make provision for things honest or good, which means that we ought to have a plan or to think ahead how you might respond to evil with good. I'm a soldier. We have things called battle drills. So anytime I walk into a fight, I've already rehearsed and prepared for what the enemy might do. You know, if there's an ambush that comes up near or far, I know how I'm going to respond to that. Proverbs 15, 28 tells us, the heart of the righteous studieth to answer. So do you know exactly how you are going to respond when the evil comes? Do you have battle drills prepared? Are you ready to overcome evil with good? Romans 12, 18 is a conditional statement. It says, if possible, live peaceably with all men. Now we know it's impossible for us to live peaceably with unbelievers in some cases, right? But, but there is no reason why two believers cannot learn to be at peace with one another. And it's a shame that we have those circumstances today. Our goal is to pursue peace with all men, regardless of how they treat you and regardless of whether they desire to be at peace with you. If your offender is not at peace with you, here's where, what you do. Here's where you begin. This is a hard thing. It's called self-examination. Here are three questions you can ask yourself. Have I provoked them to evil? Have I protracted this, made things draw out with an evil response of my own? Or have I simply failed to deal with it at all, immediately? So prolonging the problem is what that is. If you have answered yes to any one of these questions, then you are required to seek their forgiveness to begin the process of reconciliation. In Romans 12, 19, we receive our next command, Avenge not yourselves. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Now, I always struggle with this because I want to get revenge. Have you ever wondered why? It's God's? I did. I mean, God has given no one, so don't take it personally, no one the authority to take vengeance. Here's the thing. Vengeance is a judicial issue, not a personal issue. Ultimately, God is the one who will, directly or indirectly, right all wrongs. Next, vengeance. When we perpetrate it, it's an act of lawlessness because it does not recognize the lawful and righteous execution of God's judgment and God's good timing. And last, when we attempt to take God's vengeance, you know you're stealing We assert a personal right and a personal possession of something that God has personally claimed. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I don't know about you, but I'm never going to be so bold as to walk into the throne room of grace, pull the crown off of God's head, and walk out like it's okay, which is essentially what you're doing when you try to take vengeance. Just don't do it. 1 Corinthians 4 or 5 gives us this... uh, Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who, will bo- who both will bring the light, bring to light the hidden things of the darkness, and will manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. So our ultimate weapon for dealing with those who fight against us with evil is revealed in, in 1220, which says, Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. 
for in doing so thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Jesus tells us to love our enemies in Matthew 5:44, and Romans in this or Paul in this particular passage in Romans is telling us uh, specifically if they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they're hungry, give them something to eat. Probably not the thing that you want to be doing. Well, let's take that a step thir- further. If they have a specific need, look at your resources. Can you meet that need? Look, you're, you're talking about the eternal destination and soul of a person who's declared themselves not just an enemy of you, but an enemy of God. And relationships are one of the few things that we take with us into eternity if we've invested right. What a shame if that person ends up facing the judgment of God in hell forever because you responded evil to evil. Overcoming evil with good is the best way for us to overcome any feelings that we might have for our offender after we have forgiven them in our hearts. Let's put this all together. We can only be stronger together if we learn to deal with the offenses we encounter in this life through God's biblical pattern. Now as we close, will you stand? Will you bow your heads, close your eyes, bow your hearts? Will the praise team join me here? As you have seen, bitterness is an effective tool that Satan uses to divide and conquer us. We are stronger together when we uproot any root of bitterness in our life. We start cleaning out the garden of our heart. There are some of you today who have been holding on to hurts that need to be forgiven. You can no longer say that you do not know what the problem is or how to deal with it. And until you deal with that bitterness in your life, then you're effectively functioning as an active agent of Satan, sabotaging yourself and those around you. And my heart breaks for you because nobody wants to stand before the Lord and give an account for something like that. I challenge you to forgive those offenses, to restore your relationships, to seek to live peaceably with all men, and to re-enter the spiritual war that is going on right now. The altar is open for you, for anyone, to come and approach God. He welcomes you. I ask you as you come, how can you as a Christian, knowing the price that Christ paid on the cross for you, withhold forgiveness from anyone? Don't you realize the debt that you owe? And then there are some of you today who might be realizing for the first time that you are one of the offenders who has actively been at war, who has actively perpetrated evil, who has actively been offensive. God never intended for you to be his enemy. His son Jesus set the ultimate example by bearing your evil on the cross, my evil on the cross. He's calling you today. If you do not know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, it's as simple as this prayer. God, I have offended you, and I recognize that by my offenses, I am deserving of your eternal wrath. But for Jesus' sake and his sacrifice on the cross, will you save me that I might have a restored relationship with you? Will you forgive my offenses and give me the grace to forgive the offenses of others? And if you prayed that prayer, please let us know. If you don't know how to reconcile that, come up 
meet with one of our counselors. We would love to open a Bible and show you what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for this day and this time that we gather together. Lord, bitterness is a heavy thing. I pray that you help each one of us uproot bitterness from our lives to deal with the offenses that exist, that we might freely and joyfully serve you, Lord. I'm reminded of what the passage says, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are of good report, think on these things. Lord, allow our minds to be occupied by something worthy, something that glorifies you, something that preaches the gospel. These things I pray in your son's name. Amen.